Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. Today, we've got a review of a pumpkin pie bar that combined a classic filling with a shortbread crust and introduce a brownie that's perfect for an emergency. We've all been there, right? Then tag along on my recent trip to Porto and Lisbon when the globetrotting gourmet jets off to Portugal. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, last week in episode 159, we hauled out our crystal balls and talked about a few food trends that we were thinking we might see in 2020. Yeah, that's always a really fun January segment. And shortly after that segment, I saw a new article from a company in Australia. I'm wondering if our Australian listeners are familiar with them. It's a new company to me. It's called Queen. Okay. They are known for their vanilla, which they say was the Queen's favorite vanilla. So that's how they get their name. Uh Oh, excellent. What I love about this company is not only do they do a trends article every year, but it is specifically a baking trends. So not just food, not just Mm cooking, but baking specifically. So I'd love to go through some of the things that they're predicting for 2020 and see how we did on our predictions compared to them. Oh, absolutely. Yes. All right. Well, number one is so exciting to me. It is low prep, a low mess. And (laughs) they said that they are looking at things like no hassle bakes, one bowl wonders, and pantry staple recipes. Well, Andrea, I feel like we did so well on that one right out of the gate in 2019. Of course, we had our one-layer wonders cakes back in our anniversary and birthday month of November. And one of our 19 for 19 baking resolutions was to waste not, want not, bake out of our pantry, use what we had on hand. So I think we're right on with number one already. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of my favorite ones, and I just naturally tend to love the low prep, low mess. So I'm happy that that's going to continue to be a theme. Well, number two is one that sounds familiar as well, and that is alternative flowers. Now, as you guys know, we've hinted at it. And in fact, I think we officially announced March 2020, just coming up here in a few weeks, is going to be our flower power month. And we're going to investigate all kinds of alternative flowers. And we've had a lot of chatter over on our Facebook group about all of the fun and different flowers that you can experiment with now. Yeah, I'm really excited about that month coming up. And I've even taken a class in preparation for it. So I'm going to have a lot to share on that. All right. The next trend is called Power to the Plants, and it's all about a shift toward more plant-based baking using butter and egg substitutes, and especially trying to create things that are so good you can't tell the difference, which I absolutely love that idea. And again, I feel like that we have done that over the years, certainly, and little teaser, this may or may not be appearing on my 20 for 20 that we're going to talk about next week. Oh, goody. Number four was called Multi-Sensory Trend. Now, Queen means that we're not only tasting the food, but we are also going to be really invested in the smell, the touch, and even the feel of the food. Andrea, this is a really intriguing category. Yeah, they mentioned things like soft marshmallow, and it did make me think about our homemade marshmallows we did in the beginning of December and how both you and I loved the fluff (laughs) more than even the final product. We did. And also, I think we are really in love with saying marshmallow fluff. It's just so fun to say. (laughs) 
But you're right. We loved it. We did. Trend number five is called Different Dairy, and we're looking at adding all sorts of richness to our baking with things like labneh, mm-hmm. curd, and mascarpone. You know, we're not ready to reveal yet, but we are working behind the scenes on a theme for later this year that's going to fit into this category perfectly. Can you telepathically know what I'm telling you right now? I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. I'm biting my lip not to say it. So I'm super excited. Yeah, we're not quite ready, but we are putting maybe the finishing touches on that, and it's going to be a really fun month. Yes. Well, number six is black food. And by this, Andrea, they mean burned food. Yeah. This is really crazy. You know, I guess this also could be a companion to number four, the multi-sensory, because when you see that, it is going to be a very arresting visual. And also think about something that's charred, how that might taste, how that might be to touch and to feel on your tongue. I mean, it's going to be really interesting. And also in Globetrotting Gourmet here in a few minutes, I'm going to talk about a treat that also kind of has a charred top. So once again, I feel like we're doing really well on these. Yeah, I've always loved the corners of the brownie pan for that reason. And I know Ah. they make a brownie pan where every piece can be a corner. You know, it has all this sort of special insert. Yes. And I have a feeling that is something that I'm going to really enjoy learning more about. But how do you feel about the look of burned food? I mean, I guess going back to marshmallows for a moment, (laughs) I like burning a marshmallow when I toast it. Just, you know, just that flame up really quickly and then you kind of peel off the burned part. Yeah, I don't know that I like the look of burned on my sweet. I definitely like it on my savory Mm. foods. Mm. And I'm thinking about maybe a bread pudding that has some burned bits on top or even sometimes with Mm -hmm. my pies that have a nut topping or a coconut topping. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll get some burned pieces and that doesn't bother me. Whereas I think some people might want to flake those off. Got it. All right. Fascinating. Fascinating food trend. Next up, number seven, is Middle Eastern foods. And so we're expanding beyond things like baklava, which, of course, you and I have already explored, and looking for ingredients like sumac and saffron, tahini, and pomegranate. So those are all things that I loved, and I'm really excited about exploring those. And then number eight on Queen's List, the final food trend is fermented flavors. Now, Andrea, you and I both make fermented drinks. I make kombucha. You make kefir. But also talking about things like sourdough or incorporating probiotics or prebiotics into your baked goods. These are those foods that are really good for your gut. And we also talked about these in our other food trend report that we did last week. So this is fitting in, again, really nicely. Yes, and I've been upping my sourdough game since the beginning of the year. So I'll have some Uh more. (laughs) I'll have some more to report on that later on. I've got a couple of experiments going on in my kitchen. And I've even revived a dead sourdough, so it's pretty exciting over here. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wow. I mean, 2020, off to a roaring start already. On to this week's recipe review. This is the small batch shortbread pumpkin pie bars that we introduced last week on episode 159. This recipe comes from Baking Mischief, and it serves six. Stefan, why don't you tell us how you picked this recipe and how it turned out for you? There was a few reasons that this recipe caught my eye. The first is that we all have that leftover pumpkin puree this time of year. We thought it would be a really nice use-up for any extra cans you might still have. Another reason is that every time I eat pumpkin pie at, say, Thanksgiving, I always say to myself, I love pumpkin pie. Why don't I make it more? Yes. Finally, this had 
kind of a hybrid approach, right? It had a pie, but it was in a bar shape, and it has a shortbread crust, not a traditional pastry crust. So we thought that was really interesting as well. Yeah, this recipe really ticked a lot of our boxes. So let's talk about the ingredients, which there are quite a lot. There's 21, not that I was counting, but you know, when I see a recipe with a lot of ingredients, I do start to get a little bit anxious. But many of these are spices. So at least four of them are spices. So don't worry too much. I personally had all of these ingredients in my pantry, even though there are a lot of ingredients. How about you? Did you have trouble getting anything on this list? No, and I'm like you. After the holidays especially, I had everything I needed. I think it's really important that you called out the ingredients first because I have a big asterisk and I just a note on my recipe that says ingredients appear more than once. So it's important. You may have everything, but make sure you have enough of everything because butter, powdered sugar, brown sugar, flour, vanilla, milk, cream, and salt all appear in one or multiple portions of this recipe. And there are four parts of this recipe. There's the shortbread base, there's the pumpkin pie layer, there's the brown sugar streusel, and the sweet cream. So just make sure as you're going through your pantry and pulling ingredients out for this that you have enough. Well, let's start with the shortbread base, Andrea. Okay. As we mentioned before, it is small batch month. This is no exception. You are greasing a five by seven inch baking dish and lining that with parchment. Now the five by seven, as we mentioned, was your Pyrex or other brand glass storage container. Andrea, I think you may have had one on loan from your daughter's friend or Maybe you have a disposable or maybe you just have this size of storage container. That is the size of my Pyrex uh, Tupperware container. So I had that. Andrea, what did you end up using? I ended up using a Pyrex baking container as well. And okay, I didn't use the one that was on loan from my daughter's friend. That actually ended up being bigger than I had thought. Oh, okay. But when my neighbor moved a couple of months ago, she gave me this stack of glass Pyrex dishes. And I pulled out the one on top and measured it, and it was about four and a half by seven. Okay. So I decided that would work pretty well. Then you're making that shortbread base, which is pretty straightforward. I would like to call out that she has the ingredients both in measurements and then also in weights, which is really nice. But that first one, that butter, it's a quarter cup of unsalted butter or two ounces. That's the only place you're seeing ounces throughout when she's talking about butter. So if you're using a scale and you're toggling between grams, make sure you're doing that correctly and you, you're not stuck on ounces or stuck on grams because those are not the same. Oh, good point. And a quarter cup is four tablespoons and a tablespoon is 14 grams. So 14 times four is a big, big number that I can't do <laughs> off the top of my head. I was going to say, don't put me on the no, spot like that. <laughs> I think 14 times four is 56. I think you're right. Okay. Yes. But that would be 56 grams. 56 grams. So good good thing to point that out. I do like when we have both the weights and the measures. I tend to use the weights more now, and I love using my kitchen scale. I'm sure any of our listeners that got a kitchen scale for the holidays uh, will be happy to haul theirs out as well for this. Now, I did the shortbread base in my food processor. Yeah. Well, mine ended up very crumbly. And so I wasn't entirely sure if that was how it was supposed to be. She does say to scrape the dough into the prepared baking dish, and, you know, I just sort of poured it into the dish and yeah. then pressed it down. So it did come out okay, but I wasn't sure kind of of the texture she was looking for there. You know, and mine was really, really sticky. I have a note that I needed to dust flour on my hands in order to get it into the dish kind of evenly. Oh, interesting. I had the opposite. Mine was so dry and crumbly. So hmm. Okay, interesting. I ended up baking mine for about 15 minutes. Andrea, how about you? 
I went with the 18 and it said until lightly browned and I checked it at 18 and it was lightly browned. So that's when I pulled it. Okay, excellent. Now in the recipe ingredients, in the shortbread base is number four, but that's actually where the pumpkin pie layer instructions start, which we mentioned that last week. Hopefully, if you baked along with us, you noted that as well. Because you are making your pumpkin pie layer, which is your milk, your puree, brown sugar, egg yolk, cinnamon salt, ginger, nutmeg, and cloves, once you have your base par-baked, then you're going to pour that over the shortbread and bake for another, she says 15, I ended up going with 13. Now, this is where I had a little bit of drama. You'll note that when you bake the shortbread crust, she does not say to let it cool, and I didn't. I already had my pumpkin pie filling ready, so I just pulled that shortbread base out of the oven, and I poured that pumpkin pie filling over it, and this huge hole opened in the shortbread crust, (gasps) and the pie sort of all seeped down to the bottom. So. I don't know. Did you allow yours to cool? Was that my problem that I just did it too quickly? No, I didn't. And I didn't have a hole like in the center of my base necessarily, but certainly like around the edges, the filling sunk down and there was no way I could get it then back out. So what happened with the finished product, I had the pumpkin layer at the bottom. Mm. Also, Mm -hmm. like it had, it had just kind of seeped around the edges. It wasn't a huge deal, but I, there was nothing to be done about it. Okay. Well, and mine was only in a portion where that hole opened up. So (laughs) I think if I did this again, I would let that shortbread base cool because I think just having that hot out of the oven and then putting that cool pumpkin pie filling on it wasn't a good combo. Okay. Interesting. So then while your pumpkin pie layer is baking, you are making your streusel. That is your flour, some more brown sugar, and some more butter at room temperature. Make sure that that's nice and soft. You can just mix that until some crumbs form. Now here she does say put that in the fridge until you're ready to use it. Then once your pie bars come out, you're going to drop that streusel over. Bake for another 10 to 15 minutes. Then do a knife test This is one of those recipes, Andrea, that I find hard to do a knife test because of a buttery topping. It makes it really hard to tell if it's the butter, if it's the crumble, or if it's the pie bar. Did you have issues with testing doneness? Yeah, I just decided that it really wasn't done. It was still pretty jiggly. And I it said bake for an additional 10 to 15 minutes. I checked it at 10 and it was really jiggly. Yeah. I checked it at 15 and it was still not coming out clean. And so I did another five. So I baked it with the streusel topping okay. for a total of 20 minutes. Okay. Yes. And I went a little bit shorter, but but still longer than the recipe called for, which was 18. Okay. Yeah. And I just would encourage you, if you're doing that test, just try to avoid the clumps of butter to make your life a little yeah. easier there too. Good point. Then you're going to cool completely before adding your glaze, or as she calls it, her sweet cream drizzle. We love that. We love that. I'm just calling glaze that from now on. Yeah. And that's a combo of your ordinary suspects there, powdered sugar, heavy cream, or milk, and vanilla. Now, mine was really, really runny at that point, Andrea, so I added a bit more confectioner sugar. Oh, I didn't find mine to be too runny. One thing I did find, this is a minor thing and really is only about aesthetics, but Mine was sort of a clear color as opposed to a nice white. Mm-hmm. Same. Okay. Yeah. In the in the pictures, it was more white. And so maybe more confectioner sugar, I might have gotten it a little bit whiter. But that was my only tiny little quibble. I thought it tasted delicious, the sweet cream drizzle. So I didn't have any problems with it. One last time, you are going to cool in the fridge for at least two hours. She does recommend it for the cleanest cuts. And then she says, you know, the bars are delicious at room temperature or chilled. I did throw mine in the fridge, and so they were cold. I happen to really like pumpkin pie when it's straight out of the fridge and cold. 
I thought they had a really great flavor. I thought this name, Andrea, was a little bit of a misnomer. I did not eat them as a bar cookie. They were just kind of too messy for that. So I had to use a knife and a fork, as our pie etiquette experts would expect. Yes. How about you? How did you find the texture? I agree. Mine were pretty messy. I definitely could not have just picked them up and eaten them. I did cut them into six bars. Yeah. I had a hard time convincing anyone in my family to try them. You know how we both made the comment that when we eat pumpkin pie, we say like, why don't I do this all year round? Well, I had the opposite experience here at home. Both my husband and my daughter were like, pumpkin, pumpkin pie. You know, they. I think they were just sort of post-holiday, not wanting something that felt like a leftover from the holidays. Yeah. And my daughter's not a huge pumpkin pie fan anyway, so I couldn't even get her to try it. I finally talked my husband into taking a bite. I ate about half of one. I didn't love it. I thought it was okay, but mine just was so gooey and wet. And again, I think it was part of that issue with that hole in the shortbread crust opening up. I think I might have gotten a piece that didn't have a lot of shortbread on it. I I definitely did not taste the shortbread crust. Like if you had told me this had a shortbread crust, I would not have believed you. I had the same issue with the layer of pumpkin, although I had a consistent texture of shortbread underneath. Mm. I just thought it was so loose. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like running off of my plate or anything like that. But again, I just, you couldn't call it a bar. Yeah, it says they're good at room temperature or chilled. So I did... I chilled mine for two hours before I put the sweet cream on it. I put the sweet cream on it and ate it. And so at that point, it was pretty chilled. Right. And then I let it sit out a little bit. I tried it again later. I did like it better at room temperature than I did chilled. But, you know, that's sort of my tendency anyway. I refrigerated the rest, and I have to say they did not improve over time. Uh, They just got gummier and a little stickier. Okay. Okay. Again, the texture wasn't really grabbing me. The flavor was good. I think just the timing of it maybe wasn't a hit in my house. I started this review saying, why don't I eat pumpkin pie more? And maybe there's a reason you don't because it is kind of so special and so iconic at a certain time of year. I think so. I'm going to mark this one to pull out and make around Thanksgiving because yeah, yeah, I know there's a lot of times in my family of three, we can't go through a whole pie, but we love having a taste of pie. And so I think these would be perfect sort of pie bites, these little pie bars. And, you know, that's the whole point of that small batch baking. So I do think I'll pull it out again, but I'm probably going to go back to my old standard and do it in November. Well, speaking of a treat that is a perennial favorite that never goes out of season, we have Nigella's Emergency Brownies. How can you resist the woman who calls the brownies perfect for an emergency? (laughs) (laughs) A woman after my own heart. These were originally published in her At My Table cookbook, which came out, I think, about a year and a half ago are also made in a small batch, perfect, as she says, for two or one if you're having a a real, you know, dark night of the soul. (laughs) We love Nigella's recipes. We had such great success with that chocolate Guinness cake just a few months ago, Andrea. So I'm looking forward to these brownies. And they are just kind of your usual suspect of brownie ingredients. Andrea, why don't you uh, run them down for us? Yeah, we've got butter and light brown sugar some maple or golden syrup, so I'll probably use my Lyle's golden syrup, and then some plain flour or all-purpose flour, cocoa powder, of course a little bit of salt, an egg, some vanilla, 
And finally, some walnut pieces. I might substitute another nut. I'm not sure I have walnuts on hand. Okay. And then dark or milk chocolate chips. And this is where I got kind of excited. You know how much I love brownies. <laughs> I try not to make them and keep them at home because I'm afraid I'm going to eat the whole pan. Yeah. And I've not made a brownie recipe where the chips have been stirred in. I've made brownie recipes where the chips have been melted down oh. and been part of the batter. Okay. But looking through this recipe, you just fold in the nuts and the chips at the end. So I'm thinking there's still going to be kind of some chippy pieces in there. I'm very excited about that. Oh my gosh. And you know, the thing that really jumps out to me is the amount of both the nuts and the chocolate chips. And that's in contrast to the flour and the cocoa, of which there's only a few tablespoons. So I think you really need that amount of whatever nut you choose as well as the chocolate chips, to add some structure to this. Oh, good point. Yes. It's definitely not listed as optional, is it? No. No, it's not. Yeah, and yeah. I think there's okay. a reason for that. So if you are not a nut person, what else could you put there, Andrea? I don't know. Pretzel bits? Um, what pretzel else would bits, be kind of, candy yeah, like canes. a chunky thing? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I just think it's acting as more than not only a nice flavor and crunch, but I think it's acting adding some structure. Yeah, that's a good point. Or you could just double up on the chocolate chips. I think that would work. No problem there. <laughs> the other thing I love, and I thought you would love too, is that it's specific on the salt that there's sea salt flakes. And I think that's going to add a really nice hit of salt to what's otherwise a really sweet recipe. Yeah, I was excited about that too. And I had a cute little container of sea salt flakes someone gave me. I think you're meant to carry it around in your purse. So if you're at a restaurant and you have sort of a salting emergency, <laughs> you can haul it out. But I'm going to use it in this recipe. It's so cute. Well, let's hope we can all carry around our emergency brownies in our purse as well. <laughs> because this is a foil tin. She says like a takeaway container would be a uh, mini loaf pan might work here is what I'm kind of thinking. She specifically calls for an 18 by 11 by 5 centimeter. Andrea, what is the uh, American measurement there in your recipe? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I just assumed it was going to be the 5 by 7, similar to the pumpkin pie bars. Yeah, I'm sure that is. Although the picture in my book, I'm looking at my cookbook right now, it looks like a mini disposable loaf pan. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. she used the words foil tin, and yep. um, I haven't decided yet what I'm going to use. I know that for our outdoor gas grill we have these foil tins that are like a drip pan to catch the grease or whatever when you're cooking and so I might just use one of those oh yeah 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 sure well everyone we hope that you bake along with us Nigella's emergency brownies as well as last week's small batch shortbread pumpkin pie bars from baking mischief we will have both of those linked in the show notes for this episode which is episode 160 on our website preheatedpodcast.com as well as in our Facebook listeners group it's time for another segment of our popular globetrotting gourmet feature. Stefan, you spent New Year's in Portugal, which I know had a connection with one of your former baking resolution. So let's hear all about it. Ah, Portugal. A two-hour flight and literally no jet lag. Ugh, perfect. And yes, as you correctly remember, one of my 19 for 19 baking resolutions was to eat and or make the famous Portuguese custard or egg tart or pastis de nata. I ate some in London last year, but I was lucky enough to both eat and make them on our recent stay in Lisbon. Listener Doris also had Portuguese egg tarts on her 20 for 20 list, so you're in good company. But for those listeners not familiar with this treat, go ahead and fill us in. Well, these little delights are the size of a small muffin and feature a flaky pastry crust filled with a rich eggy custard. Far from being just a sweet treat, pastis de natas have been a favorite of the Portuguese for more than 300 years and are eaten morning, noon, and night. Ooh, I love a treat like that with a long history. 
These were created by monks, correct? As a way to use up their leftover eggs? Yeah, so they were originally created by monks at the Geronimos Monastery located in Belém, which is just west of Lisbon. 300 years ago, monks and nuns used egg whites to starch their clothing, leaving a lot of leftover egg yolks. <laughs> in true waste-not-want-not fashion, they put those yolks to good use, making the tarts to raise money for the monastery, and in doing so, created a cultural and culinary icon. When the monastery closed in the early 1800s, the recipe was sold to a private company, the Fabrica de Pastis de Belém, which still makes them today. And fun fact, if you buy them from this store, which we did, you can order a pastis de Belém, but everywhere else, they're just pastis de nata. I know I saw a wonderful picture of you in a hairnet in front of a large <laughs> tray of these lovelies. So tell us now, what are they like to make? Well, as frequent listeners know, we both love taking cooking classes when we travel. And the pastis de nata's class at Pastilla Battaglia was one of my favorites of all time. Very hands-on, educational, and above all, delicious. Fifth-generation baker and owner Diao was so friendly, funny, and inspiring as he taught us to make these tarts from scratch. Did you start with the pastry, like a puff pastry, I'm guessing? We did, and at first it really reminded me of the excellent class we took at Borough Market Spread Ahead last March, Andrea. We were measuring the flour, water, and salt, but then Jiao had a twist up his sleeve. He uses, wait for it, margarine in his crust. What? Is that because it has a higher smoke point than butter? Exactly. Because the tarts are baked at a super high temperature of 250 degrees Celsius, that's 480 degrees Fahrenheit, a butter-rich pastry just couldn't take it. But the margarine crust was flaky, light, and perfectly browned. It was otherwise like making any rough puff pastry as far as incorporating the copious amounts of fat <laughs> into the dough and turning it and rolling it repeatedly. We did get to use Jiao's fun laminator, which is a machine that stretches, rolls, and flattens the dough quickly as opposed to doing all of that by hand. I'm so jealous. A laminator has long been on my list of kitchen appliances to explore. <laughs> all right, so you've got the pastry all ready to go. What's next? We rolled the pastry into a thin log, kind of like making a cinnamon roll, then cut them into equal portions. Pastis de natas are baked in specific tart molds that look like individual muffin tins. And in fact, I'm going to hypothesize that the home baker could probably use a muffin tin. So we stretched each portion of dough into the mold and set them on a large baking tray to await their filling. The aforementioned eggy custard. You're right. The custard is a delicious combo of milk, sugar, flour, lemon juice, and cinnamon that is boiled gently until thickened. Jiao's recipe adds the egg yolks after the custard has already thickened, which is a little different than some recipes, but he thinks makes for a better texture. And then is it just a matter of filling your shells and baking it off? Yes, which they do for about 12 minutes at that screaming hot temperature. If you're going to try this at home, I would only do so with a super clean oven or it's going to smoke like crazy. You rotate the pans halfway through cooking and make sure they still give a little jiggle in the middle when you pull them from the oven. And then comes the hardest part, I'm sure, waiting for them to cool down enough so that you can eat them. Which takes about 15 excruciating minutes. <laughs> In the meantime, you can pour yourself a shot of Portuguese sour cherry liqueur called ginja, which is a lovely compliment to the tarts and very much like the cherry bounce we made back in episode 103. Oh, yum. Now, Stefan, you also traveled to Porto in the north of the country. Did you sample anything delicious there? Oh, yes. And Andrea, it made me think of you. What's a treat you eat at New Year's in New Orleans? Well, I think I'm officially supposed to wait until January 6th, but king cake? Ding, ding, ding. 
Portuguese king cake, or bolo rei, is traditionally eaten from Christmas Day through Three Kings Day on January 6th. This yeasty wreath-shaped loaf, filled with dried sweetened fruit, was on offer in the lobby at our hotel every day, and I must have single-handedly put away an entire wreath myself. (laughs) I loved it. I looked it up, and they both have a yeasty dough and some cinnamon, but I really feel like that's where the similarities end. Okay. The Portuguese king cake has port wine, candied fruit, and dried fruit, which I've never seen any of that on a New Orleans king cake. It almost reminded me more of a fruitcake king cake. Yeah, absolutely, and it was no wonder that I loved it so much. (laughs) Yeah. Finally, Andrea. A word of warning, if you personally are planning a trip to Portugal at New Year's. You may remember that in episode 108, I talked about the Spanish tradition of eating 12 grapes at the stroke of midnight New Year's Eve to ensure sweetness in the coming year. Right. Well, in Portugal, you do it with raisins. Oh. Now, we actually found it much easier to do quickly since they're smaller. Well, much as I may not be a fan of raisins in particular, I think I am a fan of Portugal and especially their baked goods. Thanks once again for reporting on so much sweetness. Oh, prazer in you. My pleasure. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and next week we'll see if Nigella's brownies solved our dessert emergency and have a preview review of our final Lilliputian bake, Funfetti Cupcakes for Two. And we can't wait to reveal the preheated 20 for 20 baking resolutions in all of their sugar-dusted glory. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. That's a really good point. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs)